Heavenly Father, Lord, we uh, do praise you this morning for being the God who does glorify his name and who is zealous for his name's sake. And this morning we're so grateful that you have grafted us in, into your promises, that we will one day be partakers with you, reigning in glory. So, Heavenly Father, this morning speak through uh, me and the worship team and uh, all the pastors in America and around the world that are proclaiming your glorious word We ask, Lord, that it would fall weightily upon the hearers. And, Lord, that we would be not just hearers of the word, but doers. That many people would be regenerated as a result of the words proclaimed this morning. And that those who are yours, the saints, would be equipped for battle and would be conformed to the image of your Son. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, again, this morning, I'm really excited. We're only going to be covering two verses. But... Well, I know it does look like three, but I actually went through that one last time, so I'm cheating. <laughs> so we're going to be covering two verses, but we've got a lot of issues to cover because we're going to talk a little bit about the law and exactly the relationship between the law and grace or God's plan of salvation. And we're going to find out exactly how it is that the law is our enemy. Is the law by definition our enemy or is it in fact uh, you and I as sinners that are the problem. In other words, is the problem the law or is it us? And of course, I think most of you know it's us. But in what relationship do, in other words, in what sense is the law a problem for those who are justified by grace? We're going to be looking at some of those issues. So let me get started into the text here. We're going to be looking at the certificate of debt that was against us. In Colossians 2, 13 through 14, listen to what Paul writes. Remember, verse 13 I already went through last time. He writes this, he says, When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him. Now let me stop there. Remember, we were dead in our transgressions, meaning all we could do, as one of my favorite sayings, is stink it up. Ephesians 2.1 says that we are dead in our transgressions. We are dead in our trespasses. That's all we could do is do wicked and evil. That's the realm that we lived in because we are, in fact, born sinners. But then it says... We are also of the uncircumcision of our flesh. Remember, this, one of the symbols of circumcision, it not only foreshadows the coming of the seed promise and one day that the seed would be cut, but it's also symbolic of the fact that we need circumcision of the heart or regeneration so that we may perceive and believe the gospel. Okay? So that was another problem that we had was the uncircumcision of the flesh. But the good news was is he made us alive together in him. And remember, that was in the perfect tense, if you recall, indicating that it has once for all been accomplished. Perfect tense happened in the past, and its effect is always with us. So God had made us alive completely sovereignly. Now when we come to verse 14, it says, Having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Now I want to talk first of all about this certificate of debt. It comes from this this word, um, and I don't know, does that come up on there? Yeah. Kirographon, which is the certificate of debt, friends. It was literally a handwritten IOU, and it could either refer to money that someone owed, or sometimes it would be regarding, for instance, the debt that you owed to society because you've done something wrong, criminally speaking. Are you with me? And this would often be on parchment, and oftentimes it was even handwritten. 
Okay. Now let me give you a couple examples of this. One of the indictments that are against us, one of our debts, is that we have not perfectly obeyed the Mosaic Law. Now remember, we're going to talk about this later, but the Mosaic Law came 430 years after the first promise of salvation was given to Abraham. Okay. And we're going to talk a little bit about that in the book of Galatians. But when the law came, you and I and all people certainly have fallen short of the requirements of the moral law of God. So who had Deuteronomy 27:26? Oh, yeah, Keith, thanks. So listen to how we've fallen short and what's required of us if we do, in fact, fall short. Cursed is he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them, and that all the people shall say, Amen. Okay, great. Thanks, Wayne. That was good. Can you say it one more time? I could. Good, good. <laughs> and I will. First <laughs> okay. is he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them, and all the people shall say, Amen. Okay, so cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things in the law. So here we have this clear indictment that every single person has not obeyed by all things in the law. Now also read Hood Philemon 19. Oh, uh, yeah, Robert. Now this is written by Paul, by the way. I'll start in verse 18. But if he has wronged you or owes anything, put that on my account. Verse 19, I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. I will repay, not to mention to you that you owe me, even your own self besides. So, yeah, he's writing a chorographon here. He's writing actually an IOU. And he's writing it trying to appeal for the sake of Anismus, the, the slave. So he's actually writing one of these handwritten IOUs. Okay, and so he that's a, this is a debt that he owes. So what I'm showing you is we have the idea of debts owed for the sake of breaking the law. And we even see it in regular civil matters where there's debts owed because of things like um, slavery, things like um, financial transactions. So what you're going to see here is this is end up it's canceled out. And again, that's past tense. But now let me ask the question, what is the certificate of debt made of? Well, it's consisting of decrees against us. So what are these decrees? And what we're, we're, we're going to see here is that it comes from the term dogma scene. And this is actually a term that has to do with, how many have heard of dogmatics? Or somebody believes they have dogma, right? That's um, kind of a systematic understanding of doctrine. Well, in fact, it's really a reference back to the Mosaic Law. And we see a reference to this in Ephesians 2.15, whoever had that verse. Yeah, Jeremy. So here you'll see, and this word is actually used here, and you'll see that dogma scene is actually referred to uh, or refers to the Mosaic Law. Starting at verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. So do you, th- do you hear what was said there? There was enmity between the two groups. And the enmity itself was the dogma scene. It was the law of Moses. Okay. So what Ephesians 2.15 is stating is that God had broken down that barrier, the commandments of God, the, the law. And so now, therefore, both the Jews and the Gentiles can become one people. But the question we're going to be wrestling with is in what sense was the law of Moses done away with? It was it really done away with, or was it merely fulfilled, or some combination thereof? Do you see what I'm getting at? In other words, in what sense does the law of Moses have bearing on our lives today as Christians? 
Okay, we're going to be wrestling with that. Now, notice something very interesting in this text. Notice it says, which was hostile to us. Okay, well, of course, it can't be referring to the decrees because it's in the singular. And that's actually shown forth in the Greek as well. In other words, if it was consisting of decrees against us, you couldn't say which was. It was it would, you'd have to have the were, right? Are you with me? Because it's plural, right? Yeah. So the point is, is when we look here at which, the which, there's a grammatical reference back to the certificate of debt. Now, here's why I'm bringing this up. Notice it's the certificate of debt that's hostile to us. Okay? And I actually wrote down that term because it's interesting. Hupenantian. Uh, now, Hupenantian has to do with against us in the volitional sense. Okay? Are you with me? So it's hostile to us volitionally. But notice what is it that's against us or hostile to us? It's the certificate of debt. It's not necessarily the decrees. Do you see what I'm distinguishing between? Notice where it says consisting of decrees. That's merely against us. And there's just merely a preposition there, kata. So the point being there is the decrees that are against us, it's not volitional. It's just that's just the way the world is. Why? Because you and I didn't fulfill the law. Okay? But when you look at the certificate of debt, there's this idea of almost volitional will, that it is hostile to us. It is angry with us because that's the debt you and I incurred by becoming sinners or by being born sinners, acting upon it, and therefore incurring the wrath of God. There's, so there's this distinction. So what I want to look at now is in what sense, in what sense is the law against us? Okay? Now, in order to do that, I want to talk about you and I, first and foremost, as being the problem, not the law. But then I want to explore a few other areas, and I'll show you. First of all, let's go to Romans chapter 7, verse 7. Listen to what Paul says. He says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said, You shall not covet. Okay, then again, he says the same thing. So that was the the 10th commandment, of course. Romans 7, 13 and 14, he says, Therefore, did what which is that which is good, of course, the law, become death for me? May it never be. And that's the strongest, by the way, possible construction. He can say, no, it did not happen that way. It's the strongest possible Greek construction he can conjure up. It, it, it can, it's a, a negative subjunctive. And so you get the idea that it can never be at any time. There can't even be a possibility of that happening. That's the idea. That's very strong, okay? So he says, rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. So according to these passages here, what we're seeing is that the law exposed our sinfulness. And again, we're going to talk about why it came 430 years after the promise was given to Abraham in Genesis 15:6 that, in fact, the seed would come from him. And that's what he believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. But now I want to talk about how the law points to Christ. And I'm going to show you a little bit of a debate that theologians have had. But before I read this passage, turn your Bibles, if you will, to Romans chapter 10, verse 2. Because I actually didn't go far enough back in my slide here. Romans 10:2. I'll just start in verse 1. Romans 10.1, Paul writes this. He says, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Now listen to what he says. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. And now we pick it up in verse 3. 
So now realize, friends, they had a zeal for God, but it wasn't according to knowledge. He says, for not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. I want you to look at this section right here to see where it says, not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own. In a sense, friends, the Israelites sought to establish a homemade righteousness, one that isn't inherently in the biblical text. It's made up. And so in verse 2, it says that they had a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge. Okay? So Paul's point here is they're falling short of what's actually in the text. Okay? So it's, which is really bad because these are the people that were given the very oracles of God. Okay? So now what I want to do is I want to look at this notion of the end, the end of the law. There's two possibilities. This comes from the Greek word telos. And the end can either mean it's completely done. It's completely stopped. There's no longer any part of the law. It has the idea of the temporal or terminal sense. It's kaput in German. Okay? It's done. That's the idea. But there's one other possibility, and this is what I actually lean towards the idea that it's perfected or completed or it's reached its goal. How many have heard in apologetics the term teleological argument? That comes from telos, and it means goal or what something points to. It indicates design. That's the point. There's purpose. And so what I think, friends, is that this word, telos, should be interpreted in the sense that the law has seen its fulfillment, its goal, its completion. And I'm going to show you evidence of that because once we understand the law in its proper biblical sense, we're going to understand salvation from Genesis to Revelation, I think, so much better. So again, this is what I think. I think it should be the perfected, completive sense. And again, telos would be the goal. Christ is the goal of the law. That sort of idea. Now let's keep going in Romans. And I'm going to keep going in verse 5. And I'm going to show you something very interesting In fact, yeah, this is a quote from Leviticus 18.5. Listen to what Paul continues on saying. He says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. Okay, now let me stop there. There is some debate about this to live by them. And there's a man named Walter Kaiser who is an Old Testament theologian. I have a lot of respect for him. This quote comes from Leviticus 18.5. And Walter Kaiser's proposal is that this should be translated, and by the way, grammatically, it's very possible, it should be translated not shall live by them, but shall live in them, in the sphere of them. So it's not that you're causally saved if you happen to be able to obey the law. His case is, no, the law was never designed for those things. The law was never designed to provide salvation because God knew full well from the beginning of time that you and I could never fulfill the law. So it's not even a possibility hypothetically. Okay, that's Kaiser's case. Now, um, did I give Leviticus 18.5 to anybody? Maybe I'll read that. Turn, turn your Bibles to Leviticus 18, because I want you to see where Paul is borrowing this from. And we're going to start right in the beginning. Leviticus 18.1. And, and I won't read this whole section, but I just want to read a few parts. Notice in Leviticus 18.1, it says, Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, saying, Speak, now we're in verse 2, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, I am Yahweh, your God. So the whole section in Leviticus 18 starts with the premise that Israel is under Yahweh. He is their God. 
And so this is, you get the sense that this is a salvific passage. It's the idea that they're his people. They are saved. These are believers we're referring to, okay, that are being referred to. All right, now, come down to verse 5 with me. And this is where Paul is quoting from. So I want you to see the context of what he's quoting from. So now in verse 5, he says, So you shall keep my statutes and my judgments, by which a man may live if he does them. I am Yahweh. Now, again, what Kaiser points out in this book, and I'll read an excerpt from him, is that, again, it's the idea not that you're going to live hypothetically if you can obey the law. God knows full well you can't. But rather, because you're already saved, you live in the sphere of obedience. It's the same idea that, yes, Lois, you're saved. But if I say you can't break a single law, otherwise you're out, right? We know full well that you're saved by grace. And same with me, because I can't fulfill the law any better than you can. So just as the New Testament church, you're in the realm of salvation because you've been saved by grace, there's still sin and there's still consequences, but you can never lose your salvation. We see the same idea unfolding here. Are you with me? That's what uh, I think is being uh, the case for. Now let me show you another passage just in uh, Leviticus 18 at the very end, just so we can see the full context. In verse 30, he continues, Moses, he says, Thus you are to keep my charge that you do not practice any of the abominable customs that have been practiced before you so as not to defile yourselves with them. I am Yahweh your God. Okay, so Leviticus 18 is bookended with I am Yahweh your God and I am Yahweh your God. In the middle, if you will do these things, you will live in them. That's the case that Walter Kaiser is making. Not that there was a hypothetical possibility that anyone could fulfill the law, but rather it was talking about sanctification. Let me read you what Walter Kaiser says. And by the way, this is a great book. I highly recommend it. I really enjoyed it. It's called Five Views on the Law and the Gospel. And you got guys like uh, Kaiser, Greg Bonson, Douglas Moo, Wayne Strickland, and others that write, and then they, they critique each other, and they try to explain how they understand the law and the gospel. Okay, so it's very good. But listen to what Kaiser says. Page 178, he says this about the law. He says, Neither can the law be made the scapegoat for our problem with sin. For the law itself is holy, righteous, good, and spiritual. And he cites Romans 7, 7, the passages that we already looked at. And then he says, The law was never intended as an alternative method of obtaining salvation or righteousness, not even hypothetically. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come about by the law. And he cites Galatians 3.21. Clearly then, the law never was intended to be a means by which people could earn eternal life. Thus, it never was viewed as being in opposition to the promises and grace of God. So that's what we're going to be wrestling with. We're going to be wrestling with, does Kaiser make his case? Are you with me? Okay, so let's look at the rest of this passage. And we're going to continue onward. Notice it goes on, it says, But the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down. And by the way, this is a quote from Deuteronomy 30.12. Okay? Then he continues, it says, Who will ascend into heaven? That is, bring Christ down. Or who will descend into the abyss? That is, bring Christ up from the dead. What, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. And does anybody remember in verse 9, Romans 10.9, what does he say right after this? That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
what Paul is doing is he's making an application. He's saying it's always been about faith. And when Moses was speaking to these people, he said, you don't have to go to the sea. You don't have to go into heaven. You don't have to go down to the abyss because faith is here. The Word of God is in you. You've heard it. You've seen it. You don't have to go anywhere. This is easy. If you believe, and, and by the way, turn your books, if you will, your Bibles to Deuteronomy 30.16. Let me show you something. Because remember, this is being quoted from Deuteronomy 30, verses 12 and 14 primarily. Whoops, I'm way past here. Let me just show you something interesting. Deuteronomy 30.16, the Lord says this. He says, in that I commanded you today to love Yahweh your God and then secondarily to walk in his ways. So in verse 16, what comes first? Well, loving Yahweh. In other words, being in right relationship, saving faith. And then in light of saving faith, in light of loving God with all your heart, all, the soul, all your mind, which is implied salvation, then you walk in his ways. Now, the other thing that I want to point out in this passage is you see where it says for and but? A very good case can be made that it should be read for and and. Okay, and I'm going to give you evidence for that. But let's read the passage over with for and and. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live in them. Remember, that's our maybe perhaps an understanding of the text. And the righteousness based on faith speaks as follows. Do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your heart, or in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching. So do you see by the switching of for to and rather than for and but, you don't have a contrast of but a both and. And let me show you the evidence of that. This is in the Greek, there's a gar, it's for and a day, which is but or and. And context tells you whether it's but or and. Who had Romans 10.10? Oh yeah, leave. Now this is Romans 10.10. Before I have him read it, What I want you to hear is it's the very same construction that we have here, for and but, okay, the gar and the day. But here you're going to see it translated or hear it translated for and and. So in other words, in the context of Romans, we have right away a for and and rather than a for and a but. And that's exactly Kaiser's point. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. And with the mouth someone confesses, Unto salvation, right? So here you have a for and an and. So the point being is there's a good case to be made that this should be read with a for and an and. Okay? Showing that there's not this radical disjunction between faith and law, but rather it's always been salvation through faith. Are you with me? Okay? Now let me read to you Galatians 3.17 and through 22 because Paul talks about this very concept So turn your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Galatians. Chapter 3, verse 17 is where I'm going to start. And what we're going to see is Paul alluding to the the goal of the law or the design of it. So in verse 17, Galatians 3, Paul says, What I am saying is this, the law, which came 430 years later, now that's after the Abrahamic covenant. So in other words, the Abrahamic covenant, the promise given to Abraham, Genesis 15, 6, Abraham believed God and was credited to him as righteousness. 430 years later, the law came. So Paul is saying, in what sense then can that save? Or how, in what sense does that nullify the promises of God? So he goes on, he says, again, I'll just back up. What, am I saying? what I'm saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant 
previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. And then in verse 19, he says, why the law then? Now, here comes the design of it. It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Okay, so that's the question. And how does he say it? In the most powerful way he can, may it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The design of the law was to demonstrate our sin, but it was never given as a hypothetical that if you happen to live perfectly by the law, you can be saved. Now, incidentally, when the law came, if you could in fact obey it perfectly, yes, you would be righteous. In other words, we see texts in the scriptures where, in fact, there seems to be a hypothetical possibility. In fact, just earlier on in Galatians 3, verse 11. I'm sorry, back up verse 10. Galatians 3:10. For as many as are the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Okay? And again, that's from Deuteronomy 27:26. And he says, now, in verse 11, now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. All right? And so the whole idea there is, hypothetically, if someone were able to obey the law perfectly, could you be saved? Yes. But the point is, that was not the design of the law. The law was never designed for that. God is omniscient. He knows you could never fulfill it. The law, that's why it came 430 years later. So what was the design of the law? It was our tutor. It was our tutor to show you you're a wretched sinner who needs the seed promise. You need Christ. That was the purpose of it. So are you seeing the distinction? So sometimes you see passages that seem to allude to the fact that if you obey the law, you can be saved. But was that the design of the law? No, because God knew you could never do that. He's just using it hypothetically. If you could, yes, you could be saved. But of course, we know you can't. That's the idea. So was the design of the law ever to save? No. It's always been by faith. And so what I want you to see, friends, is there isn't this radical disjunction between the old and the new, between the law and grace. It's always been by grace. Salvation has always been the same. That's why when Abraham believed God and it was credited him as righteousness, Paul alludes to that as the saving act par excellence in Romans chapter 4. Are you with me? He uses that. And that's 430 years prior to the law even coming. Now, let me show you one more passage we'll read, and then we'll kind of get back to our text here. Galatians 3.24. This is the purpose of the law. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. So that is, in fact, the purpose of the law. So let me try to put it together again one more time. The law was never intended to save anyone. God knew full well that none of us could obey it. Sometimes you'll see text where it implies if you could obey the law, yes, you would not need a Savior and you would be justified. However, you and I have all fallen short of the law. Does that mean that the law was in fact intended and was designed to save us? No. Salvation has always been by faith alone, by grace alone, in the Messiah alone. Are you with me? Okay. And the law has always been designed as a tutor. Okay. So now let's get back to our text. Now we're going to see that God blotted out our debt in Christ. 
And so notice, we're ta- we just asked about the certificate of debt or talked about the certificate of debt. That is our violation of the law. And notice what God has done. He has canceled it out, past tense. He has, in fact, taken it away and he's nailed it to the cross. Now, I want to talk about this having canceled first, what I've highlighted red, ex lathos. And here we have, it literally means to rub out, wipe away written records. Now, this is very interesting. Oftentimes, this would happen on parchment. People would have ink that would actually be on parchment, and it would be an IOU or a debt of some kind. It could be either financial or penal, okay, if you're in the penal justice system, and it could literally be blotted out. Now, what you're going to see is evidence, even in the Old Testament, that God, in fact, blots out sins. Who had Isaiah 42? I'm sorry, Isaiah 43:25. Oh, yeah. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Yeah, so do you hear? He will be the one that wipes out our transgressions. That is Yahweh. That's God. And so here it's the same term used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, so God is pictured as wiping clean the parchment, if you will, the record against us. Now, I'm going to show you something very interesting in Revelation 3.5. There's a big correlation because that same term is used again. But now I want to show you also this notion of arrow. In other words, do you see where it says, taking it out of the way that I have highlighted red? It literally means to remove, and it can mean literally to lift up and to kill, according to... Um, some of the Greek lexicons. So what did God do to the debt that you and I incurred? He has canceled it in the past. He has taken it out of the way, literally lifted up and he killed it. Okay, he killed it for us, so it's completely destroyed. And then what else did he do? Well, he also nailed it to the cross. And so the image here, I think, has to do with the indictment that was against the criminals. Like, remember, Christ was considered a criminal and there was an indictment above his head that we see in Matthew 27, 37. In fact, I had Bert um, had that verse. Do you want to read that verse, Bert? Listen to this, the, this idea of the indictment being of, above Christ's head. And they put up above his head the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Wow. So here, here's the irony. Jesus, the King of the Jews, who is sinless, he has, what is the indictment against him? They're mocking him. He's the king of the Jews. Well, ironically, he is the king of the Jews, is he not? He is. And so the imagery here that Paul is portraying is this indictment that was against us, one that we really deserve, namely our certificate of debt because we violated the law, that was nailed to the cross. And it was blotted out and canceled. And so there's nothing but a blank sheet. And it was pinned to the cross of Christ. And it's been completely done away with. It's been killed. And therefore, we see that we have complete atonement. We have complete salvation. And so we see this beautiful reversal. And now what I want you to see here involved with this is this reversal where the stoichia now are publicly humiliated. Because remember, when you're on the cross, you're stripped naked, you're beaten, you're flogged. And it is a completely humiliating experience. Okay, that's one of the things that the Romans wanted to do to their opponents and those who they were putting out their penal wrath upon. But what I want you to see here is, ironically, when Christ goes to the cross, Paul is alluding to the fact that there's a reversal. You see, to the world, it seems as if Christ the Messiah, Jesus, he was humiliated and everybody scoffed at him. But when in reality, it was his enemies that were humiliated. It's just that we haven't experienced it yet. 
And that's what you have to believe by faith. And I'll talk a little bit about that. Who do we believe that was actually humiliated? So let me just read this to you. I just wrote a little ditty. Or, or no, I guess I have a verse here. Sorry. Uh, Colossians 2.15. Listen to what Paul writes in. He goes, When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Okay, so of course, of course God had triumphed over the stoichia, over the rulers and authorities through Christ. He was the mechanism by which he did that. Now the term disarmed is interesting. People have debated how should we interpret it. And it's not that it's completely a mystery, but here's, here's the choices. It can be translated as stripping off of clothing. It can be disarm. And I think actually the NASB nails it here. But I'd like to propose another idea, and it just encompasses this whole thing. It's the idea of humiliation. Think about the idea. When he had humiliated the rulers and authorities, he made a, a public display of them. In other words, the idea of the, the stoichia being disarmed, it's humiliating. And then he made a public display of them. He br- brought them in a public display, in a procession, and he humiliated the stoichia in the heavenlies. That's what he did. Now, you and I have not witnessed this physically yet. But one day, what we are to trust is at the end of the book of Revelation in chapter 20, after the millennial kingdom, there's a day that they will in fact be humiliated. The stoichia, the demons, Satan, and all of those who have in fact rejected the word of God and are the enemies of God. So there's this great reversal, and this is what I wanted to read to you. That Satan and the Stoichia thought that they had won a profound victory by Christ's humiliating death on the cross, but in actuality, God had publicly humiliated them. This humiliation will ultimately be seen after the millennial kingdom. And the question to ponder is this, and this is what I want to think about for application. Who do we think was humiliated? In other words, in our day-to-day walk, who is it that we believe was ultimately humiliated? Do we believe that it was Christ who was humiliated? Or do we believe it was the stoichia Satan in the world that rejects him? Because this has to do with our saving faith. I remember as an airline pilot, I was on a bus. We had to take shuttle buses to get from point A to point B. I'll never forget being on the bus. I was a Christian, and I sat there, and I realized we had some flight attendants that weren't the most godly of character. And I remember listening to them thinking, it's so ironic that if you talked about Christ with them, they were humiliated. They'd be publicly humiliated of him. But yet when they talked about all their vulgarities and all the sinful things of the world, that did not humiliate them. And I thought, how ironic. Isn't the Christian life really, in a sense, about who we're humiliated or what we're humiliated by? Are you humiliated by Christ or your sin? Are you humiliated by Christ or those who denigrate Christ? Who do we believe ultimately that will be humiliated on the last day. See, you and I as Christians, we're the ones who are saying, yeah, Christ is on the cross, but he's going to have the last laugh. Are you with me? And the world is saying, yeah, Christ is on the cross, and nothing ever became of it. And he's humiliated. I want nothing to do with him. So in a real sense, what saving faith, in a sense, is about is, whose humiliation are you trusting in? Are you trusting that one day... Christ and therefore yourself will be exalted because he was raised from the dead? Or are you saying, no, that didn't really happen and I can't trust that that humiliation didn't occur? And I don't believe that the stoichia will ever not be humiliated. Do you see what I'm getting at? There's, there's this great debate in pondering of who will actually be humiliated. 1 Corinthians 1, through 24, Paul talks about those who actually see who's been humiliated for indeed, he says, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, 
but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. So it's absolutely a stumbling block to Jews. They can't believe that their Messiah would be one who was crucified, murdered, and humiliated on a cross. Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, right? And the Gentiles, they say, what kind of God is this? A crucified criminal? It's foolishness. But yet, to those who are called, and again, this is the effectual calling, the calling that God alone pours out through regeneration upon his elect, enabling them to perceive who actually was humiliated and therefore believe the gospel. And so we're the ones, those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Also look at what he says in 2 Corinthians two fourteen through 16. He says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. So what we just saw in verse 15 of Colossians 2 was that the stoichia were led in procession and it was humiliating. It happened in the spiritual realm and one day it will happen physically. But what does Paul say about us? We're always in the procession. We're always in the enclave or the entourage of triumph with Christ. So we never have to be humiliated. Yes, the world will try to humiliate you, but you're always living in the realm of triumph because of Christ. And that, friends, is really good news, especially in the days that we're living in today. One other thing I want to point out, do you remember that term, having canceled, exalephos? Remember I talked about how it meant rub out, wipe away the certificate of debt, the idea of um, wiping clean the parchment, right? And we saw, and I was at Isaiah 43:25 that God would do that for us. He'd wipe away our sins. I want to show you something very interesting. That exact same term is used in Revelation 3, 5. And it says, He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. So first of all, notice the portion that I have bolded. This idea that because you and I were partakers in the quote-unquote humiliation of Christ, God is therefore not ashamed of us. Amen. Okay? But look at the idea is that he will not erase us or exalephos. He will not rub us out, blot us out from the book of life. Okay? So remember, in Isaiah 43:25, God does exalephos our sins. But because he exalephos our sins, he does not exalephos us from the book of life. Are you with me? But to those who don't have the exalephos of their sins, they get the exalephos from the book of life. You see what I'm saying? It's a reversal again, isn't it? So that's, I think that's very interesting. And then what do we see again in Revelation chapter 20, verse 15? It says, and if, any, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This happens at the great white throne judgment. And I want you to think of how scary that will be for unbelievers, as if this is in fact literal, and I, I uh, suspect that in some sense it is, God will open the books and he will be looking at only the reprobate, those who are damned, and he will say, you're not there. And I think it's going to be terrifying. And so the reason why I bring this up is it's interesting throughout my Christian life, I often debated, does this passage when it says, I will not erase his name from the book of life, does that indicate that it's a possibility? Does it indicate that it's a possibility that I can lose my salvation? No, I don't think so. 
In other words, God is, the idea here that I sense is that God has written our names in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. We know that He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Ephesians chapter 1, right? So if we are written in there, the idea is God never blots us out because we're the elect. But the notion is that's because you've had your sins blotted out. But to those who never trust in Jesus Christ, they never have their exalathos. They're never blotted out their sins. They are, in fact, blotted out from the Lamb's Book of Life. And right here in Revelation 20:15, he looks and he says, I, I don't see you there. And it's got to be the most terrifying lack of having a dinner reservation that anyone's ever had. Are you with me? Okay. It's going to be amazing. Friends, that will be the ultimate humiliation ever. And so the reason I bring this up, friends, is it gives you a sense of what we've been spared, but it also shows you what our enemies are heading for. And we need to pray for them and to witness to them so that they don't ever have that sinking feeling in the pit of their gut when God says, I don't see you. I don't see you on the list. And it's going to be piercing. It's going to be powerful. And after that, they're cast into the lake of fire. In fact, they're given a resurrected body specifically for the purpose of always enduring punishment and torment. And friends, that, and that comes from the Holy One of Israel. That is wrath that I would not want to incur. So this should motivate us also and spur us on to want to be um, like the Roberts and the Jeffs and all of you I know, so many of you out witnessing on the streets proclaiming the glorious gospel of Christ. Um, so at the end of the day, this is what I want to leave you with. There's only two options. Those who partake of the shame of the cross had their sins blotted out, but they will not be blotted out from the Lamb's book of life. The only other option is this. Those who are ashamed of the cross do not have their sins blotted out, but they will be blotted out from the Lamb's book of life. Those are the two options before mankind forever. And I know the emerging church would say that's binary reductionism. Well, tough. That's what we have. Matthew 25, there's the sheep and the goats. There's no third option, right? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for these great truths found in your word. And we thank you, Lord, that we, in fact, have not been or never will be blotted out from the Lamb's book of life if we've trusted in your Son. We do thank you, Lord, that you've canceled out the sin debt that we incurred and you removed it as far away as the east is from the west. So far have you removed our sins from us. And, Lord, we're forever grateful I ask for my brothers and sisters here that you would keep them from the evil one and also, Lord, that you would give us the the motivation to get out even in these cold days to witness to our neighbors. Put the gospel upon our lips so that we're consumed with taking as many as we can with us to the glory of your kingdom. And we ask that you would accomplish that even through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we have quite a bit of time and I um, figured we'd probably have some questions or comments or show ideas or... Yeah, and I, uh, Robert's got the mic, and if I can't answer it, I'm sure somebody can. Dick is here. <laughs> Keith, yeah. <laughs> I just uh, I just wanted to expand a little on these uh, these heavenly powers. Yeah. And in Revelation uh, 12, uh, we see that uh, Satan is thrown down and he's called the accuser of our brothers. Mm. It's been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And so you see Satan here uh, constantly reminding God of this certificate of death. Mm. But God at this point isn't listening. He's being uh, thrown down. And if we go back to um, uh, Matthew 24... At the coming of the Son of Man, it says, um, 
that um, the powers will be shaken. So when we when we see the the uh, moon will not give us light and the stars will fall from heaven, uh-huh. and the powers of of heaven will be shaken. Uh, so I I think this is another reference to this disarming of these powers, and you can even go back to Isaiah 24, uh, verse 21. It says, On that day the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. That's right. So you see this theme uh, repeated over and over, uh, even in the Gospels and uh, the prophets. Mike, that's beautiful. I love that. Yeah, that's interesting. You think about Satan being the great accuser, and our certificate of debt no longer bears anything to accuse us on. It's been blotted out. That's a beautiful image. Yeah, there's nothing to accuse us with. Uh, thanks so much. That's great. Oh, we had um, some over here. I know Wayne had his hand up. And Jeremy, uh, Pastor, could we look at uh, Revelation three five again some yeah. more? Um, yep. There and looking back into what uh, Jesus is saying to the church at Sardis, there does seem to be some further requirements to not have your name blotted out. Okay. Uh, primarily in verse 5, it does talk about overcoming. He who mm-hmm. overcomes will not have his name blotted out, yeah. which does seem to indicate that there's some performance required and or sanctification. We'll talk about that a bit more. Yeah, um, that obviously has to do with the perseverance that we have to undergo. But turn, turn your Bibles, if you will, to 1 John 5. I'm going to just show you how John understands this concept of overcoming. 1 John 5, chapter, or I'm sorry, 1 John 5, verse 4. Yeah, and he, <laughs> thanks Keith, yeah, and John wrote Revelation, yeah, thank you. This is what John writes, it says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Then in verse 5 it says, Who is the one who overcomes the world? but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And so again, we see in the context of all of John's writings that if you're going to be an overcomer, you're one who is in fact believed in Jesus Christ. That's how you're an overcomer. Why? Because the Lamb overcame the world by his own blood. Okay? He in fact gave us this atonement. If we trust in him, you're now an overcomer. Yep. Yeah. Well, I was going to... Talk a little bit more about the powers as well, because the way I understand, especially the glacier, that whole area with the, the yeah. stoichia, is that the stoichia were God's um, God's agents in enforcing His law, and in, in a certain way, the same when when Israel would would stray, He'd bring in the Assyrians, He'd bring in Babylonians to enforce His yeah. His decrees. The fact that this law was sitting there against them, gave the Stoichia legitimacy in their operations in the lives of these people who are under their power, legitimately under their power, because they're saying, he's not saying that you never were, he's saying that you were. And when Christ was crucified and took that sin upon himself, inasmuch as we believe in it, the lever or the stick that the Stoichia were beating us with is no longer valid. Wow, so he has really truly disarmed them because yeah. the weapon of accusation and the being under their sphere of influence isn't there anymore. Right. So we really truly are outside of their power because right. they don't have the law, which was their weapon, right. to beat us with to even uh, afflict us. 
And when you think back on, it was the law that brought our sin into existence. We had a law in the garden, and Satan tempted Eve, and she disobeyed it. We had the children of Israel coming out of the land, and the Moabites were, were, it was the, when, when Satan could tempt us to disobey the law, if we're trying to have that righteousness established by the law, that's what we'd be afflicted with. Now we don't have to worry about that. We can just have, have faith, and by having faith, we're out from underneath those powers. That is a beautiful picture, yeah. They have been disarmed of any stick to beat us with. I love that. It's a beautiful image, yeah. That's exactly right. So the Stoiki have nothing to say against those who are under the blood of the Lamb. Yeah, there's an interesting perspective. There's a verse here in Luke that's probably the one that most people think of when they think of Jesus talking about being ashamed. It says, yeah. uh, it's Luke 9:26. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory. Yeah. I just did a search for that, and I literally found... Dozens, maybe hundreds of verses dealing with the same thing, being ashamed throughout yeah. the Old Testament. So. Yeah, you know, it's funny, um, from Bob's preaching, uh, and thanks so much, Troy, that's beautiful. Uh, from Bob's preaching, I really have come to understand this concept of reversal and shame so much more. Remember the prodigal son? What does the father do? He shames himself as he runs to the son. The, the father is willing to shame himself, temporarily speaking, for the sake of a lost sinner. This beautiful idea then of reversal at the last day. Who is not shamed but God? He's exalted and so are his people. And who are shamed? His enemies. So we see this idea of honor, shame, and then reversal. And uh, it's just beautiful to see how it's all tied into the scriptures. Um, oh, we got a few more? We got, oh, yeah, Rich. I like the way you really show the contrast between the humiliation of Jesus Christ. What side you stand on it? In 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, it talks about the glory of Christ. Yeah. The gospel of the glory of Christ. The gospel is God's glory. The fact that he was stripped bare and nearly skinned alive and yeah. stuck on a cross. I mean, how humiliating. Right. But that's the glory yes. of Jesus Christ. I mean, that's his very glory, right. the whole gospel message. Yes. But yet I think the evangelical world, we miss that. Yes, the fact yeah. that that's his glory and that's how we're saved. We think that somehow we can bridge the gap, but we can't. Right. Let me pick up on that, Rich. Um, you're in 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Let me move again. I, one of my favorite passages regarding that issue is uh, Romans 3.25 because it hits on something very important. That Remember, three, it starts in Romans 3.23. says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but are justified freely through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith. And it says, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at this present time that he is both the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. So think about this with, the, with respect to Christ's glory and therefore God's glory because he's fully God. Forever, God would receive accolades and glory for him being just. He's always been just. But what's interesting, and this gets into the issue of why did God allow evil, what's interesting is because he was able to become our justifier, because you and I sinned, he therefore was enabled to show his full orbed glory, because now he's not just both just, or just just, but he's also now justifier. And he therefore gets glory for even that. So what's interesting in the scriptures is that God takes what is shameful and evil and he uses it even redemptively and he actually um, conquers it 
and he adds more glory to his name. That's what he did through sin. So when people ask you, and I know I'm getting a little off the topic that you're on, but when people ask you in day-to-day life, how is it that a good God would allow sin or evil in life? And what's interesting, the answer comes in Revelation 21. One day there will be no more tears. They will be wiped away. And you and I will say, you remember what it was like to be sick? After all, friends, you don't know what it's like to be healthy until you've been sick. You don't know what it's like to have a day off unless you've worked hard. And we won't know what it's like to reign in glory unless we've suffered here and now. And God is going to take all those things. He's going to use it to magnify his glory, his honor, and his name. And so forever, because of the humiliation on the cross, he will be able to be both the just and the justifier and get glory for it all. Yeah. So that's beautiful, yeah. He gets glory even through that humiliation. Is the book of life and the Lamb's book of life the same? Yeah, I I think so. Um, I haven't done an exhaustive study. I I think it is. I haven't seen any reason to think it's anything other than that. Anybody got any thoughts on that? So, um, oh, yeah. We got one more back there. Sorry, Robert. (laughs) So God, even though our sins are forgiven, past, present, and future, Our responsibility is still to ask him to forgive us, correct? That's right, yeah. So they're forgiven, yeah. but we still need to ask him. Yeah, yeah you, that, that's, that's right. Speak more on that. Yeah, we see that in First John 1. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The idea is, again, you said rightly that we're justified past, present, and future but in the process of sanctification to make us more like the Son, God does require of us, and it's a part of obedience, that we say, yeah, you know what, I sinned here. And in fact, the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And that's not only just the world, but it's us as well. So in other words, it's a good sign when the Holy Spirit convicts you of your sin, because that's really a sign that, in fact, you're redeemed. One other item on that, isn't it interesting, talking about the whole idea of shame, Isn't it interesting, you and I, the more you become sanctified, a true Christian is humiliated of their sin. Where do you notice the unregenerate, they're never ashamed of it? Do you know what I mean? Although (laughs) there's some sense, and even they have shame. In other words, the old joke that you don't, you hear about streakers, but you don't hear about strollers. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) So there is some shame there. But my point is, is, I remember being, <laughs> I remember being on the on the my bus again. It was an airline pilot. I remember these these people that were unregenerate. They were never ashamed of their lifestyles or anything. And I thought, man, I'd be ashamed of that. But you know, it wasn't me. It was Christ in me. And yet, I wasn't ashamed of Him, and they were ashamed of Him. So, yeah. Again, back to your question, though. Part of keeping a short list before God is remembering that yes, I was forgiven. And in light of that, being a person that wants to be conformed to the image, I'm commanded to repent of my sins, and he's faithful and just and will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yeah. Thanks. Great question. Yeah, Scott. I was just going to ask you to talk to the idea that the book of life, and those are really anthropomorphisms. They're, they're, they're anthropomorphisms. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, very, very possible. In other words, is it like, for instance, when God says that I covered over... Uh, Moses with my hand. Does that literally mean that he has a hand? No. Does it mean literally that he has a book? I, I don't know. I don't think so. Maybe it's an anthropomorphism, but maybe it's maybe it's symbolically, you know, in other words, I don't know. I don't know how um, I, far I should push it. Um, I don't know, you know, is there some great scroll that he actually has? I tend to doubt it. I think that he has it all up in his noggin. 
But it's something, I think you're right, I think it's probably an anthropomorphism so that you and I can actually understand what he's saying. Yeah. It, it represents a real record, but I think it's all up in his noodle. Yeah. But again, in other words, at the last day, are we going to actually see something? I don't know. I can't say. I wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise me if he actually had something. Just so, again, you and, I, you and I as human beings are visual people. And it's interesting what's spiritual a lot of times ends up being manifested physical for the sake of our benefit. It's not for God. God has, he's omniscient. He knows all things. So certainly he doesn't need to write anything down. So yeah, I would tend to lean towards it's an anthropomorphism, but I wouldn't be surprised if it ends up being literal on the last day for the sake of humanity's benefit so they can actually see it. Yeah. So with that, friends, Bob is sick. Be praying for him and his lungs. Whenever he gets sick, it goes to his lungs. So just be praying for Bob it's a tough thing when he gets any illness. So just be lifting him up today. And um, I'm going to try to save my voice a little bit just so I can go another 50 minutes. I don't know how this guy has done it for all these years, try to talk for two hours. But anyway, uh, maybe it's, it's training for me to be an air traffic controller or something. I don't know. <laughs> they, they talk a lot, those guys. So I don't know. Anyway, blessings, my friends. We'll see you up top.